0: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and apologies for the lateness. Um, We're going to try and steal a little time at the end, but uh, I'm sorry we're late. Welcome to this latest uh, session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, I'm Magnus Linklater, and my guest, I'm delighted to say, is Andrew O'Hagan. Uh, we're, we're grateful to The Times, which I represent, for sponsoring The Times and The Sunday Times, for sponsoring the Book Festival, and for the Ope, to The Open University, which is sponsoring this session. So, doubtless, there'll be a little educational tinge to the things <laughs> this afternoon. Andrew Hagen, of course, you will all know uh, from his writing, uh, his novels, his criticism, his journalism, and now his essays. Uh, And what's always struck me about his work is that he is tremendously driven by curiosity. Uh, Curiosity whether it's about his own family and background and upbringing in Glasgow, curiosity about this country of ours, um, curiosity about fame. And these essays are full of that sort of questing sense of wanting to find out about people and about places. But, Andrew, essays, I don't think in Britain we are sort of much drawn to essays. They sound rather dry and academic. Um, Why have you called these essays?
1: I realise that there is a sort of almost native objection to the idea of writing essays, because of course we think of essays, we think of school essays. Um, And one of my nephews, when he heard that my latest book was a book of essays, he said, did they make you write them? (laughs) In a sense, uh, I made myself, which is even more perverse, I would say. Um, But certainly you're right that as a form, we associate the essay uh, with the French and largely with the Italians and the Americans, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine, in the, the years of George W. Bush, that uh, Joan Didion's essays, or Tom Wolfe's essays, uh, went to number one in the American bestseller list. You know, people couldn't wait to read these particular writers uh, and to gain something of their understanding of what was happening in the country. It was a form of stylized writing that really mattered in those cultures. But I have to say that it did too. Uh, if not in Britain, very much it did in Scotland. Um, I consider uh, my own small voice to be added to an enormous pantheon of Scottish essayists. I think that during the Scottish Enlightenment, in particular, in this city in particular, um, you could throw you know, a cork and it would have, within 200 yards, hit a first-class essayist. <laughs> during the period when we had uh, Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, James Boswell, Lord Kames, an endless procession, really, of first-class prose essayists mm. um, who really invented a new style for the essay, which I think is, I've grown up with and have adapted, adopted very naturally, which is to make it very personal, um, opinionated, uh, but also as, as much work in a literary sense, um, not that you should see that work as the reader, but certainly as much craft Um, as you would get in any passage of a novel. Mm. I've always believed that there is no great hierarchy of forms. There is for journalists. Literary journalists often describe the hardback novel as being, you know, the the summit uh, of writing achievement and everything else files underneath and the essays somewhere down there with the short story. But for me, uh, this country in particular, and other countries whose writing have taken an interest in, America especially, um, is full of that attempt, the full-hearted, full, broad-chested attempt to introduce new argument, new debate, new language mm. into, uh, into prose writing. Mm. And for me, uh, the Scottish Enlightenment is the absolute pinnacle of that achievement. That's what it's done uh, in a way that I don't think any other co- country in Europe could make claims to being equal. Mm. Uh, I mean, while Rousseau Rus- was at work, there were five or six um, of that standard in Edinburgh.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, the, the, these essays are anything but uh, dry or academic. In fact, Andrew, they come very close to me, and certainly some of them, to what I would describe as journalism. And I'd quite like to ask you about the difference between the two, but perhaps it might help if you were able just to, to read a, sure. a, a, an Absolutely. extra.
1: I'm going to read just the opening uh, from a long piece I'll just give you an introduction to it because it it caused quite a lot of comment at the time uh, and I was pursued on the question of style in relation to this kind of writing. It was a piece about New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Three or four days after the event, I went to the United States and traveled with a couple of young guys who were determined to become heroes in this situation, as so many uh, ordinary Americans were. They wanted to take their truck and go to New Orleans and save people. Uh, and it was a great post 9-11 urgency and almost, almost a self-transforming need to do good and to be useful in the world. And these young guys, both of whom working-class guys, both television repairmen um, who I'd linked up with, uh, were quite crazy in many ways. And the journey was, they had guns in the car, and they were desperate in many different respects, but It was a 10,000-word essay in the end. It's a piece of reportage, I suppose. Um, And we can talk in a minute about those distinctions, if you like. But for me, it was simply an attempt to go inside that situation and do the best writing I could. This is the opening. The sky over North Carolina was showing red the night Sam and Terry decided to leave for the South. The red clouds traveled to Smithfield from the Western Hills the high Appalachians and the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Great Smokies. Sam Parham is 27 years old and weighs 260 pounds. For an hour or so, right into the dark, he pulled on the starting string of an electric generator he'd borrowed from his father until the top of his T-shirt was soaked in sweat. Goddamn bitch, he said. This motherfucker is brand new. I want the goddamn thing to work, you know. We're sure gonna need it, ass when we get to New Orleans. Sam's neighbor had chickens outside his trailer and frogs were hiding in the pine trees along the drive. An American flag hung limply on the porch as Sam inspected the back of his truck with a giant torch, the crickets going zeep, 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 and red ants crowding in the oil at his feet. I just can't watch those TV pictures of children stranded and not go down there, Sam said whilst Yolanda, his pregnant girlfriend, sat in the porch and opened a, can of, opened a can of mildew and lit another cigarette. Yolanda was wearing her uniform from the Waffle House, where she works the night shift. You can't expect me to agree, she said, but, but I respect you for doing it, Sam. I just think it's the government should be doing it. I'm just a blue-collar guy or whatever, said Sam, and I'm going to do what I can if the country needs me. Terry Harper is a co-worker of Yolanda's at the Waffle House. As we drove along Interstate 95 to pick him up, house lights flared in the distance and Yolanda started talking about God. My daddy knows the Bible one hand to the other, and when he starts speaking at you, it's like preaching, she said. North Carolina was the birthplace of Billy Graham and three U.S. presidents, Andrew Johnson, James Polk, and Andrew Jackson. And also, among the twinkling lights out there, could find the uncelebrated birthplace of Thomas Wolfe, the North Carolinian who wrote, Look Homeward, Angel. As the truck got nearer the Waffle House, someone on the radio made the point that North Carolina was itself no stranger to hurricanes. Hazel, 1954, Hugo, 1989, Fran, 1996, and Floyd, 99. It's no stranger to racism either. The Noose River, the Ranaoki River, and the Yadkin River, named like so much in the state by the native Indian population that was cleared to make way for the twinkling lights of Interstate 95, have been known to bust their banks and flood the plains. That's what we were facing that night. The radio was silent on the fact that America's first ever sit-in occurred at Greensboro, North Carolina, to protest against segregation at a lunch counter. It's dead in here, said Yolanda. I'm not cooking more than 200 a night. What's going to happen to you guys?
0: Uh, I, I may say that that, that particular essay, which, which follows these two guys down to New Orleans, is an extraordinary picture of a kind of America you just do not see. I mean, they were pretty scary guys. I mean, not only are they clearly, I, I thought, psychopaths but uh, <laughs> their attitude to women left a lot to be desired. Mm,
1: that, that's putting it mildly. They, it was difficult in that situation because the two guys were, were sort of desperate but they were desperate in a very typical way mm. for the America of today and it felt very necessary to recede uh, as a writer and just simply to observe and record and present the material um, in a literary way. That's to say with a sort of grace and allow the reader to make their mind up about the moral dubiety or not of these boys, it seemed to me that it would be pushy of a writer in my position to constantly uh, present to the reader, as some, some people do. George Orwell, for instance, for all his wonders as a writer, would quite often intervene in order to you know, make a liberal argument or present excuses or to say why things were as they were for these people. But in this particular situation, I felt uh, the novelist in me almost told me that this would be a purer piece of writing, a piece of writing that would be more memorable and more active in the reader's imagination if I didn't intervene. People, some people, felt I should have because their behavior was so outlandish. I should have been the good liberal journalist who said, well, of course, they live in poverty, you know, and uh, they didn't get much education. And uh, you must pay attention to the fact that, you know, um, they've probably been abused and they're in pain. You know, I think that clever readers, which is what we always imagine we have got, um, <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't be dictated to by writers like me. They, they should be provided with the equipment to really imagine this situation. A situation, after all, that has come to be very much part of our lives, all of our lives. America's waywardness, America's strangeness, even to itself, is a part of our story now, which is really the theme of this book. But certainly, those writers I grew up admiring uh, in this form. A writer like John Hersey, who's quite forgotten now, but he's the only writer ever to have filled a full issue of the New Yorker magazine with one story, and it was an unspeakably brilliant story called Hiroshima. He went in there several months after the, the bomb and described through six characters what had happened that day. And you don't hear Hersey's voice even for a second. He behaves like Flaubert, you know, present everywhere, and invisible, nowhere. And I think that that is the standard that we must reach for if we're to do it well.
0: And, and where do you draw the line then between, you use the word yourself, reportage. In fact, you indicated that possibly that was a piece of reporting because mm. the reporter stands back uh, and um, whereas the essayist one sort of imagines
1: as being a critic. So well, the essay, the great thing about the essay is, is it's a capacious bag. You can really pour any number of definitions into it and if it's strong, it will hold. Um, and there are many different sorts of essays in this book. Mm. Um, that is a reported piece, you know, that it was based on Uh, material that wasn't inside my own head. Um, I had to go and find those guys, I had to travel with them for those weeks, I had to have the gun pointed in my direction in order to write about their lives. And that's the way it was, but other essays, of course, that come up here um, are based on perhaps a combination of memoir and analysis, a sort of essayistic, Mm. uh, critical faculty, which is the one I was pointing to Mm. in relation to Scotland and its enlightenment. The Enlightenment wasn't good for reportage, uh, for describing the Scotland of the day. Novelists did that better. We looked Mm. to James Hogg or Walter Scott Mm. to learn about the Scotland or the Edinburgh of of that period. But but the essayists conjured from their own minds uh, argument and a display of technique. Um, So some of the essays, I suppose, would be more like that. There is a a variety and I like that variety, Mm. you know. You've got to let the job dictate what you're doing, you know. Uh, the situation will dictate the form, you know, mm. and people often say to me, why, as a novelist, are some things clearly a novel and other things are a, a long-reported piece or a, an essay? And it's almost not a matter of one's choosing. The material, the rhythm of it, the pace of the language, the way it's coming at you presents itself uh, in terms of a form mm. very quickly. I'm sure that one or two things that one runs up against would be a poem, were I able to write poems? You know, that I can understand how some poets um, wouldn't be interested in writing a novel because the things that occur to them don't occur to them in mm-hmm. that shape, with that beat, with that rhythm. They don't sound like prose. And I think that's where you get to.
0: You used the f- phrase at one stage, writers aren't gods. I think what you meant was that, that they, they don't, they can't influence things. They, they, are, they merely, they sort of look down on what they are describing. Is that the way that you
1: it see yourself sur- as
0: God? <laughs> or not God?
1: <laughs> or not God. I mean, it, it always surprises me when uh, people overreact to something you've mm. written. And an overreaction to me is, is, as it were, trying to treat it as if it was a piece of policy or an editorial, mm. especially if it's something that you've written in a novel. You know, but really, as, as Dr. Johnson said, there's nothing too small for such a small thing as man. Mm. And the idea that we should censor ourselves as writers because certain issues are touchy or there's another point of view that you won't be reflecting. Of course, there are other writers to reflect those points of view and other parts of our readers' understanding which will allow for that other point of view. So it surprises me when people come back at you so ferociously um, for something you've said. That happens from time to time. People feel upset, as if it's better that certain things are unsaid about a culture. The possibility for example that the working class that used to exist in Britain had a purpose, uh, had a way of life, Mm. had a language, had jobs in a way that made them a very different sort of class from the class that exists now, which is uh, attracted to a sort of leisure life of gold rings and satellite TV. Well, just to say what I've just said will make some people uh, suggest that that's something that you shouldn't say. That it expresses some view of life which is unsympathetic or um, unimaginable, even if true, and I've always resisted that. The writers that I grew up admiring, including some of those ones I mentioned to you before, were quite, um, I think, unshirking and mm. trying to get onto the page what they found to be true, what they found to be true. You know, it's not an, it's not a. You're not God, you're not declaring something from Mount Olympus, you're simply writing something and offering it to people uh, in the hope that it will in some way enlighten or open up a, a line of inquiry. But one's often treated like a policymaker, and that's quite <laughs> surprising.
0: It's quite I- interesting, I mean, you, you, you touched on the, the difference between uh, previous generations and their attitudes and today's, and, and one of the things that you're clearly very interested in is the cult of celebrity. And you, I think you described going into a class of girls and handing out uh, sheets of paper and asking them to write down what did they like to be. And in previous eras, they might have said, you know, a hairdresser or hmm. maybe a lawyer. And 80% or something of them simply said famous.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That was a, a girls' school in North London, and uh, quite, a, quite a working class school. And uh, I was amazed by that response. I was going through the pages like this because, Growing up in Scotland, at school, we all had an answer. People were always asking what, what you wanted to be when you grew up. and it, Boys always wanted to be an astronaut, and girls always wanted to be an air hostess. <laughs> always seemed to me slightly symbolic that all the Scottish children in my school wanted to be very high up in the air. <laughs> you know, men were a bit more ambitious. They wanted to be actually in another galaxy somehow, <laughs> um, or at least beyond the natural atmosphere. Girls settled for 30,000 feet. That seemed very, sort of, you know... Uh, logical. But no, they didn't have any real job in mind. They had a condition in mind. The condition of being famous, being celebrated. And when of course you said, famous for what? They'd say, oh just famous. (laughs) And I tried to explain that it it was traditional for people to become famous as something, or for (laughs) something, or via something. And they looked at me as if that was the most baroque, (laughs) crazy, old fashioned notion they'd ever heard that I was clearly, you know, not of their party. Um, And, you know, I went on to describe the business of sportsmen becoming famous through, you know, eight hours a day, or this guy that we see, Phelps, you know, cutting through the water like a great porpoise, you know, that years and hours of dedication and dieting and attention and concentration, that's not what they meant. They wanted to be on um, The X Factor um, and just to be discovered, and I've always found that need to be overwhelmingly interesting, because it's come to dominate so many areas of our culture Mm. in Britain. Mm. It's one of the areas in which Britain and America have really come into uh, a sort of marriage. Uh, There's been a a sort of moral blight, to some extent, on our sense of what is the well-lived life. The well-lived life such as it existed in our understanding in this country and in America before, was based on uh, at least small quantities, if not large quantities, of discipline, of experience, of learning, of talent. And talent is not democratic. That's the hardest thing to say to young people. You don't have a right to be talented or a right to be famous. It's as much of a responsibility based on a a, a talent that has become obvious. The idea of talent and of producing talent and protecting talent has gone out of the game in fame and celebrity now and what we're faced with Mm. is generations now who step forward with an absolute sense of pure entitlement Mm. about their soon-to-be famous status. Mm. And of course what that leaves is a generation of very, very disappointed young people.
0: But also, as you, you say in one of your essays is about Michael Jackson. And of course, your novel, uh, based on which is um, called *Personality* on Lena Zavaroni, yes. is about the destructive uh, aspects of celebrity. And you use a phrase, a sentence, which is quite striking. What is it about fame that makes people unbearable to themselves?
1: <laughs> well, I've always felt that. I mean, based on a number of things. I mean, you mentioned Lina Zavaroni. I remember discovering word of some letters that Lena zavaroni you'll all know who that is, you know, very famous uh, 1970s, the first wave, really, of working-class celebrities. You know, in the 60s, you had Helen Shapiro and so on, but a version of that, you know, somebody who had come from a, a family of chip shop owners, uh, and her our fa- our parents were local musicians, that's to say they played in the pub, and she was plucked up by a previous generation of talent contest, of course, Opportunity Knox. Uh, won it five times. She was only, uh, I think, 11, the first out of the 12 at the time, and became incredibly famous overnight. That kind of 1970s fame that existed before cable television when we were all watching the same program at the same time. Mm. I remember that? Where everybody had watched the Morecambe & Wise Christmas mm. special. <laughs> Nobody hadn't watched it, it wasn't weird. Um, so she, she was caught up in that. I remember finding these uh, these declarations, these letters where she said, I've lost myself I'm in a black hole at which point she was 14 Mm. by that point she was suffering dreadful uh, accelerated version of anorexia nervosa the combination of being famous whilst not being quite grown the combination of food and exposure all of those things came together to create a very sick little girl who was dead before she was 40 and that seemed to me to be a story right at the center of our culture. As a novelist, you don't always feel that, not even about the books you're writing. You don't feel that everything you write is at the center of the culture. Some things are quietly, uh, eccentrically, making their, singing their song. And some people like those books and want them and we're happy to have written them and to, to be uh, standing up for them. But every now and again, you feel that you have a subject which is bang at the center of the way we live now and that seemed to me to be one of them. That girl, I allowed very much to influence a character in, that, in the novel personality that you mentioned. Uh, I wanted to go my own way with that character in some ways, so I didn't simply create a novel with Lena Zaveroni at the centre. She had a family, and her family were nothing to do with the characters I, de- I was dealing with, so I invented a family for my character. But, but nevertheless, that life and that, the meaning of that life, I think, is right at the centre of it. Mm. Um, Michael Jackson, on the other hand, is just the most interesting person in the world. <laughs> um, he really is. I mean, when you start to think of it, Michael Jackson, you ought not to too much. But if you do... <laughs> He discovered that he's a sort of endless trope for everything about the way we live now. This man who was a very, very talented and very beautiful human being, who decided to destroy himself, destroy himself physically um, and, as it were, imagine himself out of the world, uh, out of existence to become this iconic mess. And so I enjoyed writing an essay about him because it caused me to have to go and think he about. He imagined him a whole himself lot. as Elizabeth Taylor, didn't he? Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor, first Diana Ross, alike. then Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. uh, then as the monkey bubbles. Um, there were several other great uh, human and uh, non human uh, models in between. But, and then, of course, his whole sense of what is fair and just and, and, and human was altered. He's a com- he became a completely self invented. Uh, entity. That's to say a figment of his own imagination. I mean it's like taking Oscar Wilde or Andy Warhol and tripling it (laughs) to get to a new place where self invention becomes a kind of disease. Doesn't he belong on the psychiatrist's couch
0: then rather than... I
1: think he's been on it a fair amount. The psychiatrists you know aren't bearing up well after the experience. (laughs) Um, Neither is Martin Bashir, it has to be said, who tried to interview him once upon a time. That's another story. <laughs> well, another
0: celebrity that you have taken an interest in recently, because you've edited uh, a, a, a book uh, of his poetry, is Robert Burns. And uh, Robert Burns, I don't know if you've been reading the papers this morning, but uh, yet another attack by the unspeakable Paxo <laughs> on our national bard. Uh, and Jeremy Paxman, who really enjoys teasing the Scots, and. Uh, and takes great pleasure out of it. And to be honest, we get quite a lot of pleasure out of it mm. as well, mm. telling us we've got chips on our shoulders, mm. and what, which is true. But on this occasion, he has attacked Robert Burns as a poet who is, writes nothing but sentimental doggerel. Are mm. you going to leap to his
1: defence? Um, the only thing that can be said about this, I think, is that I'm not a vengeful person by nature. <laughs> But you know the way Jeremy Paxman really likes fishing in Scottish rivers? Mm. I think he should be banned <laughs> immediately. His fishing rod should be taken from him and possibly used for another purpose, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, well, of course, he's idiotic. This is coming from a man who still thinks Wordsworth is a fantastically relevant poet. Um, <laughs> sentimental doggerel, well, if that's sentimental doggerel, um, then there's hope for all of us, is all (laughs) I can say. Listen, the the great thing about being able to uh, take some pleasure uh, in being Scottish or having grown up in Scotland or liking Scotland is that it does actually house in its national memory the work of the world's greatest poet. There is no poet in any country, in any language, who marries locality, custom, Sheer human struggle with brilliance and excellence in the way that Robert Burns does. He is the world's best poet. He's closest to the human character, to the, the whole effort of one human being to feel empathy for another. There's music in every second syllable. I think he is absolutely not requiring of a defending by me. He's a poet that lives in people's hearts and there are few poets in any nation, in any language, of whom that could be said. So against that kind of feeling, I think Jeremy should go back to where he comes from, possibly the Newsnight studio, <laughs> um, and busy himself uh, with you know, commentaries on you know, less important cultural matters, shall we say. I think we can clearly- <laughs>
0: Uh, you, you've, um, uh, well, obviously you're a fan of Robert Burns, I can tell that. Just a wee uh, bit. Um, what about the, the, the Scotland in general at the moment? I mean, you, as now, uh, uh, an, I do you count yourself an expatriate, Scott? Ah, you live well, in Well, I just realised
1: London. the other day that next year I have lived as long in London as I lived in Scotland, which is a terrible threshold in some ways. Um, terrible, I have to say, not because I don't like living in London or because I have anything Uh, to throw into the great, you know, annoying uh, disputatiousness Mm. that can exist between Scotland and England. I love the idea that Scotland and England are neighbours, cousins, brothers, sisters and friends. Um, We've been very good together for Mm. 300 years. And, uh, you know, despite the nationalist incursion into popular sentiment that we're witnessing at the moment, I feel that Scotland and England together are fantastic. It is nevertheless a threshold because uh, it's hard to imagine ever not having spent the larger part of one's life in Scotland, and Scotland being at the heart of one's sense of where your domain is, Mm. because so much of my domain, imaginatively, is in Scotland. But then, of course, going to America and writing these pieces and writing from England and on English subjects, as I have done, too, I suppose has diluted that somewhat over the years. But Scotland will always be the place, I think, where I hear the primary voices, um, I think it was Norman McKeague who once talked about the first voices, mm. that it can exist for a writer, and my first voices are Scottish, and I it, hear them that way. Y-
0: you've got an essay in that about Scotland and about, in particular, Neil Asherson's uh, book, Stone Voices, where you, you take him on, don't you? You, uh, you? you rather, you attack him in fact for a view of Scotland which you think is sort of trapped uh, in, 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 in the past.
1: Well, Neil Ashkelson is one of the best writers in the country. Um, and he's certainly the best journalist I think Scotland had produced in the second half of the 20th century. I have nothing but respect for him. And it's having respect for him and having grown up reading him that allows us to go into argument with him. We argue with our favourite writers because that's what they taught us to mm. do. Therefore, Neil's book about Scotland did, for me, uh, raise a whole lot of uh, difficult issues about where Scotland had been and where it was going and it seemed to partake in a myth-making aspect of Scottishness which is overwhelming. All small nations have a myth of origins and a myth of their character and of the was like itness. but Scotland has it to a degree sometimes that is too much and I simply wanted to say that and to argue with Neil's position he felt that the the ancient togetherness of the Scots was absolutely to be taken for granted, when I felt that Scotland was actually a disputatious country, and sometimes fantastically disputatious, I mean admirably disputatious, uh, a country of differences uh, and of change, and I wanted to argue that case as against Niels, but from a position of respect, because he is an important writer, and I would continue to uh, read anything Mm. by Asherson the day it was published.
0: Mm. Well, talking about disputatiousness, um, I think that this is a moment when we might perhaps turn to the audience <coughs> and see if there are any uh, questions, disputatious or otherwise, <laughs> from you. So if you, if you do want to ask uh, questions, please hold your hand up, uh, there's one already there, and wait until the microphone gets to you. You've got a standing
2: up questioner, that's always a bit of a worry. <laughs> <laughs> And a disputatious question, Magnus. Um, Andrew, let me preface my remarks by saying I'm a great admirer of your writing. I've read all your books. And I note that actually all your novels are indeed informed by Scotland. Most of your essays obviously are informed by a different experience. And in a way, it's an extension of the question that uh, Magnus asked. Because how long can you go on using Scotland as the inspiration for your work? when actually you are no longer like Neil Ashenison, I have to say, a part of Scotland. And part of the problems with Neil's book, I thought, was that he no longer lives in Scotland. He's an occasional visitor like yourself. And it was brought home to me by your remarks on Glasgow East when you compared the patriotic pygmies of the SNP, uh, devoid of intellectual contact compared to the giant of Wendy Alexander, um, (laughs) suggested to me, perhaps you're out of touch. So the question is, are you really just an Englishman (laughs) (laughs) now? Oh, right, go for it. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Or I, as the case may be. Well, can I just say that that remark you made about the SNP and Wendy Alexander, only the first three words were in quotes. The idea, not even I, in my great enthusiasm and optimism would call Wendy Alexander a titan or a giant or whatever you said but let me just answer the question this way Um, it's a fair question people have been leaving Scotland for thousands of years some of them have been writers some of them have been bankers some of them have been film stars some of them have been bakers you know people should be feel free to leave their country and take their nationality with them you don't leave your nationality at the border anymore than a Russian writer who had lived in the West or an American who had lived in Paris as Hemingway and Fitzgerald did or any number leave their identity behind. It's not a betrayal to move around the world. We are citizens of the world first before we're adherents to any nation, any party, any political movement. And that's always been one of the perfect things about Scottishness, it seemed to me. It was, as Gertrude Stein says, and is a movable feast. You take Scotland with you wherever you go if you care about it. If you don't care about it, you'll forget it and become English, as you suggest. <laughs> There'll be a part of me that is probably, you know, the DNA, the, the protons of Englishness have been bouncing off me for so long that I'm sure I've been happy to absorb quite a few of them. But no, I insist that it's a movable feast where you come from or where you care about. And those who care about Paris take a little bit of that feast around in their shoes. And I'll always feel, no matter where I set books, and many of the future books will be set outside of Scotland, inevitably, just as part of a creative drama that you go on, you change and you move and your subjects evolve, but there'll always be Scottish soil in my shoes, simply because I'm so interested in the country. I hear the language so readily. Um, the SNP, well, we could argue the toss about that for a long time, as I could with other people, but as I said at the beginning, I'm one voice, actually it's a rather drowned out one at the moment <laughs> in relation to this subject, but I feel, I feel that, I'm, as I said before, there's an argument to be made about the beauty, not just the functionality, but the beauty of the union that has existed between our countries. We are a small group of nations We've done well together in my view. We've also done some terrible things and we've done quite badly economically in recent times. There is an SNP argument for these territories that we're talking about. These by-elections have been fascinating. But for me, it has been a beautiful arrangement to get these small nations to somehow maintain their distinctive features, their systems, their languages and their culture whilst also having the benefit of camaraderie and of closeness and that seems to me a sensible arrangement that the SNP wished to deny out of existence. And I just find that uncomfortable, but it's just me talking. Then the country will have another way.
0: <laughs> um, are you then slightly disconcerted that um, Scotland appears, for whatever reason, to be um, turning towards the nationalists?
1: Not disconcerted and slightly fascinated. Um, I mean, I described before this process of the Scotland's a special sweet tooth, if you like, for mythologies. It's too sweet, and it's that sweetness, it's that decay. If you follow the metaphor, that Alex Salmon taps on with his metal prong every time he raises an absolutely (laughs) false image of Scotland. Mm -hmm. It seems to me. That Scotland's addiction to a lie about its origins, in a sense of the benefits of Scottishness as opposed to Englishness, has to be based only on a, mytho- a, a mythology and historical lie. This, if you look at Hugh Trevor Roper's posthumously published book, The Invention of Scotland, an absolutely indispensable book, it seems to me, you know. This is a book that goes hand in hand with what many writers both within Scotland and without Scotland have been trying to say quite simply and often quite modestly in their novels and essays for years which is that there is no Scottish history before 800 that we know. The great 175 kings, many of whom's faces can be seen, many of whom's invented faces can be seen in Holyrood House as we speak. That great myth of the great ancientness of Scotland where ancient Scots were in touch with the pharaohs and with, were reading Aristotle, was just a complete lie <laughs> and we understand now if we look at critical history as opposed to uh, propagandistic history and I'm afraid to say that the propaganda of Scottish history has laid, lies behind too much of nationalism's dreams. If someone had the imagination to imagine Scotland anew he and his very clever group of thinkers were able to throw off the yoke of that terrible nonsense about what is like is and this is our historical legacy, and let's look back to our ancient wars for precedence of our genius and our forward motion. If we'd stop all that and imagine us as a small, excellent nation with an international character within Europe, we'd begin to move with them. But at the moment, we hear this absolutely terrifying scurl of the bagpipes <laughs> going up, which itself is part of an invented mythology, wearing Celts, which are part of an invented <laughs> mythology, thrown in the face of an England which, long since, it has to be said, threw off its Anglo-Saxon mythology in an attempt to become a modern um, society. And I think that that's right. where we are.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Let's have a... <laughs> I think we see what you're driving at. Where's the counterblast? Uh, where, where is a there's a, 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 a question there?
2: The hype for this... Uh, oh, sorry, I was
0: pointing it out. But you carry on, the and hi- then we the come to you. Just
2: the hype for this event was that you were going to talk about a declining Britain and a rising America. Maybe you read the, wrong, the, hype, the right, hype for a wrong program. So maybe you yeah. could say something about about Britain and the situation that Britain is in. I mean, many people think that it uh, is in something of a crisis, and a crisis of identity.
1: Yes, I'll happily speak to that. Uh, the, I can't speak about the crisis economically, if you're talking about the credit crunch and all that. That's. I mean, this book focuses on where uh, Britain has gone culturally, if you like, and politically since, well, and hand-in-hand with America, since, really, the era of Thatcher and Reagan. And what I identified, at least tried to identify, in some of these essays was uh, a diminishment of a certain sort of community in Britain. We witnessed that happening through the 80s at the same time as we witnessed a rise in American influence in these countries, this country. And I've tried to tell that story, if you like, through a series of essays, some looking at declining communities in industries, but also some just looking at how the culture of a certain kind of materialism, a certain sort of fame that was imported during the 80s especially has come to dominate so much of our lives here. Uh, Many of the essays are about that. I think that when we talk, as we have done, about some of the hungers that exist in young people in Britain now, those those are not native hungers. They were imported and they've transformed their imaginations and transformed their home lives such that I think that not just talking about Scotland, but I mean in most places in the United Kingdom you see that there is evidence of people, families, where there are three and sometimes four levels of worklessness. You know, grandchildren who are coming out of school now into joblessness, their parents were jobless, their parents were jobless. It's not just about unemployment either. It's about having no ambition for work and no culture in in which work is a defining property in your life. I think looking around this room, certainly a large degree, a large number of the people in here would have grown up in a culture where work defined you or the expectation of having a task, a money earning task, gave you a reason, gave you a community, a language, and a way of moving forward. And I think in so many cultures in Britain now, that's no longer true. And I wanted to tell that story through these essays. In America, that has been true in America, really for quite some time. We saw it coming in the 70s, and these guys that I was reading to you, but they're part of that, they're fourth generation underclass, where they have no expectation. They get bits of work as repair guys, but they want fame and glory, and they don't expect really to be, they don't expect to be rewarded for, And honesty is what? (coughs) Question up there.
3: Well, as one of your kind of uh, kilt-wearing Scots, (laughs) I I would like to just uh, question the uh, frenzy of your uh, depiction of the Scottish uh, psyche. It seems to me that very few people who were voting in the by-election or voted for the SNP note or care in the least about your so-called mythical kings. And it isn't, uh, I have seen it not in any way in any of the SNP uh, um, uh, propaganda, as you would call it. So um, I really don't know where you take that information from. And I think, more importantly, uh, and Grassic Gibbon would have probably agreed with this, to be dragged into wars that are totally irrelevant to your culture, and not also the recent Iraq war and so forth, by people who don't understand your psyche in another place, where uh, where it might be more interesting simply to look after your own house and not be tenants in someone else's house, seems to be more the kind of logic and more the motivation of the people who are now voting for the SNP, and uh, so not a, this kind of uh, mythical kind of bagpipe skirling thing, which of course will go on forever and which indeed uh, is a splendid music, the p is comparable to Bach. (laughs) Our our friend Norman McCabe would have said. (laughs) That's a fair enough point. I don't think
1: there's an answer to that. That's a point of view, it's not mine. But it's it's certainly valid, and a lot of people in Scotland feel that way now. I can see, probably more than ever, the only thing I'd take exception to, really, is the notion that, that your tenant's in somebody else's house you're not in somebody else's house. You can move house if you like, but you're moving house. It's part of the infantilization of Scotland to always suggest it's a put upon subtenant in some house that it had no part in building. We had a large part in building it, and we've honored the, build, the builtness of it for 300 years. So depart the house if you like, and it might be actually smart, a smart move. It might turn out that you were right, and I'll applaud you on that day, But please stop the infantilizing, we are, mummy and daddy are not fair to us, we are stuck in a room upstairs whilst the big part of the house is given over to England. That's just not worthy of you as a nation. We are a strong nation who built that union and we have cemented that union both as imperialists abroad ourselves and at home. So please... Do yourself a favor and honour what you've been. Otherwise, you have to deal with this bad faith of always having been an occupied territory. You're not an occupied territory. A question down here.
4: <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll keep sitting, and that makes it less threatening. I think. As you said, Magnus. Um, I'd just like to say how much I agree with the last two speakers. The gentleman who spoke um, passed the emotion I kind of felt myself, have I had wandered into the wrong place. I was expecting a much more contrast between Britain and the United States. Maybe I just read the wrong Well, I word. think that's probably the chairman's fault, so you, uh, can, you can blame me. Okay. <laughs> Going on to the second one, which I thoroughly agree with, and I think, um, Andrew, perhaps you've been away from Scotland for far too long. The vote for the SNP was nothing to do with bagfights and kilts and remembering what Wallace and, and Bruce did. It was down to the sheer competence or apparent competence of the SNP and the fact that they were putting Scotland first. I support the SNP. I don't want in, an independent Scotland. I want to see people that put Scotland first. I want competence. And like many of the voters in the last couple of by-elections, we were sick of the incompetence of the Labour government. Thank you.
1: Well we've ended up talking much more about Scotland than I would have wished to, simply because, you know, I have probably written two or three essays in my life about Scotland and we they're endlessly discussed here. I would just say that if you expect me to be an apologist for New Labour, then I'm not your man. I'm simply interested in Scotland's future as as much as its past. I do disagree with you. That the SNP You're suggesting, as well as the other gentlemen's that the SNP have not used that mythology look at their speeches look at what John Mason said on the night of victory about this being the first election where a Scottish government was set against the face of a British government sowing the seeds and drawing on the fruit of discord between these two nations rather than embracing what has been our history our united history I'd, I actually just can't agree with you it's not I'm not imagining some you know, skirling backpipe in the distance that exists only in my head. It's used as part of the whole effort to upgrade the feelingfulness of the Scottish National Party in our time, I feel. But point taken.
0: There's one over, uh, at the back there. The bearded gentleman, <laughs> Mr. Cochrane. <laughs> Mr. Cochrane.
4: Uh, as someone who deals with the independence argument every day of the week, I'm fed up to the back teeth of it. Although, while I agree with Andrew 100%, can I go back to the the British-American situation? If Andrew's right, and there's a a, a loss of community on both sides of the Atlantic, the French, for instance, seem to think there is a a crime. They call it It Anglo-Americanism. They're striving desperately, as far as one can tell, to retain their sense of community. Maybe the 35-hour week was a manifestation of it, although now... Sarkozy's unravelling it, can this this Anglo-American loss of community be resisted? Or is it an an inevitable global spread?
1: We'll
2: recover it in Scotland.
1: It's interesting that in the American situation over the last 20 years, we really grew into what you might call its premier position as the world superpower. It's also based its entire foreign policy on hubris on a completely bogus notion of its own universally lovable power. And what we're now noticing in China, in South America, and massively in the former Soviet Union, is an absolute unwillingness, nay, a refusal, to follow the American global model of economics. They are not doing what the great hubristic American thinkers said they would do, what the neocons said would happen, when Francis Fukuyama wrote *The End of History*, it was close up the shop. The West has won. The walls come down. Global economy is going to be dominated by America. Small nationhoods are over. The idea of opposing, uh, you know, nationhoods and superpowers squaring off— that's over. It's all America's happy birthday now. And actually, he was totally wrong. The age of disputation is back and is wheeling up not down. And the idea that the Chinese are promising to follow American modes, models, and manners is a nonsense. They're actually full of a sense, and their generation is full of a sense, that the American model is defunct and will not work in the long term for their particular goals and their particular cultural hopes. So America um, you know, really got that wrong and we lived and indeed aided part of that wrongness. As the gentleman said, and it, it's one of the strongest arguments for me for a single Scotland, is that business of not being, the absolute sort of horror of being dragged into a foreign escapade. Um, but at the same time, it seems to me that America, which is the question, got it badly wrong and were back in that age that they thought was over. They thought it was finished. They thought it was close up and they're wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. We've got time for just one, that last question. Somebody else down there,
1: <laughs> this lady will o-
0: we'll come to you. We'll have, if you can keep it very, very short, can you?
2: Very brief and probably once again just a point of view. I, I'm a proud Scot, proud of my nation. I'm not an SNP supporter and I actually think Alex Salmond is particularly clever because he wants to call his party the Scottish Government and yet they haven't passed a single piece of legislation and we're all buying into the fact that Scotland's been wonderfully governed, we're just part of his like national conversation. And I do think, you know, the SNP would be better to actually be passing legislation of the real government. But that's just an opinion.
0: Okay, very good. And here
1: This is not a political thing. Um, this is a frivolous thing. Um, I'm American, actually, but I consider myself Scottish, so I wanted to thank you because you said very early on before the right after the question started that you can live in other countries and still consider yourself Scottish. I've been in America for 28 years and I still consider myself Scottish, so I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just want to say something very briefly, and that is that it's a good idea in any nation, especially one with the richness that this particular one has and that exists in these islands altogether, to have a critical culture. That's what we've been having in this room today. That's what seems to me to matter: is that you can argue amongst yourselves, uh, you can take yourselves above fighting, simple flighting, and arrow pointing, and actually get into exchanging views about what kind of culture. And writing essays was always about that mm. in Scotland. It was a critical culture um, where we didn't. We went to the pub afterwards and had a drink, and you know, teased each other for the strength of our views, but. It isn't an adversarial um, culture. You don't need to simply fold under the suggestion that somebody thinks something that you don't. It was one of the strongest things about this culture in the past, and I think it still remains.
0: There's a good Scots word for it. It's called flighting, and I think we've had that this afternoon. I apologise, by the way, (coughs) if if we've diverted from the... The, the program note, uh, but you know, with Andrew, it took on a momentum of its own, and I'm sure you will agree that he was not uninteresting. Thank you very much.